Warning, the subject matter in this episode of Unfold may not be suitable for all audiences. Halloween is right around the corner, Kat. Are you going to be doing anything? Yeah, you know, I'll be doing the whole trick-or-treating thing with the kids and dealing with the fallout as I eat half their candy. (laughs) Right. Do you know the meaning of Halloween? Uh, Yeah, doesn't it mean like All Hallows' Eve? Yeah, did you know that? I, I didn't know that. The celebration on the eve of All Hallows' Day. In Western Christianity, it's the time when you remember the dead, including saints, also known as a hallow or holy person. So the word Halloween came from Saints' Evening. Yeah, I have heard that. And some say, because I looked it up in Wikipedia, that it started before Christianity and has roots from a pagan festival called Samhain in Celtic-speaking countries. The ceremony marked the end of harvest and the beginning of the dark half of the year, and a time of year when the boundary between this world and the other world, the world of the dead, thinned. Ooh, that's a little spooky. Are we going to be telling old ghost stories in this episode of Unfold? (laughs) Oh, much worse than that, because all of what we are about to unfold is true. It is not a ghost story. Names have not been changed to protect the innocent. Nope. It is a dark moment in European history. It begins in 18th century Germany. Why? What happened in 18th century Germany? It's very unsettling. Morbid. Death. Murder. (gasps) Murder? The killing of small children. Jeez, that's awful. And suicide. Also awful. Precisely. That's why this special Halloween episode of Unfold is called Murder, Suicide, and the Macabre. It's also got fornication, child murder, sex with the devil, executions, witches, blood libel, and briefly, QAnon. Good times. (laughs) This is going to be so fun. Perfect for Halloween. Coming to you from UC Davis, this is Unfold, a podcast that breaks down complicated problems and unfolds curiosity-driven research. I'm Amy Quinton. And I'm Kat Curlin. So we begin in 18th century Germany? Yes. Kathy Stewart, a history professor at UC Davis, has studied one particular macabre trend from that period of time, which she will unfold for us. It's 1704, we're introduced to a 30-year-old serving woman named Agnes Schicken. Agnes Schicken. So she was um, a young woman in Württemberg, uh, which is a Protestant territory in Germany in the Holy Roman Empire. And she is wandering the countryside, walking from village to village. She was outside one of these villages when she came across, in her words, four beautiful little boys playing together along the roadside. So she encounters these groups of children playing, and she uh, tries to convince them to walk with her into the forest to go for a walk. And the other kids, most of the kids say, no, they won't go. And one little boy uh, agrees to walk off with her alone into the forest. He went off with her alone. I, I would kill my kid if he ever did that. No, he would, he would know better. The boy is a seven-year-old named Hans, and he's the son of a local cowherder. And everything about that day seems innocent, at first. And she spends the afternoon with him, and they have a wonderful time, and they go for walks, and 
uh, there's this tender scene where she has the little boy on her lap and she is actually delousing him, which is very, you know, very tender, a moment of tenderness. That That's a moment of tenderness? <laughs> so I guess it's like grooming, maybe? Apparently. But then it starts to get late and little Hans wants to return home for the evening. At that point, Agnes throws the child violently to the ground. Then she takes out the knife and she's going to murder the, the boy. And the boy becomes frightened and he begs for his life and he pr even prays a prayer to appease her. Twice, Agnes is moved by his prayers. And for a moment, she seems to be ready to abandon her plan, but then she's embittered and she decides to go through with it and she cuts his throat and then she says to him, you are a sweet angel before God. Agnes says this apparently just after cutting the boy's throat so deeply that she could look down into his neck. Amy, this is making me sick. Like, why on earth would she do this to an innocent child? Well, she immediately turns herself in. Later, in her confession, Agnes says the child was now saved and that she had only done it so she could also leave this world. She wanted to be executed. So she was suicidal. Right. Why didn't she just kill herself rather than someone else? Because suicide was a sin, one worse than murder. So the suicidal, like Agnes, thought it was better to be executed. The prohibition to commit suicide prevents many of these people from actually going through with what we can call direct suicide. Because contemporaries call suicide by proxy indirect suicide. And quite explicitly, they articulate the idea that if I go through with this suicide now, I am damned forever. And this pulls them back from the brink. But then they find this other option where they can remove themselves from the world and avoid damnation. And that's the fundamental logic that explains uh, suicide by proxy. Agnes then wasn't alone in committing indirect suicide or suicide by proxy. Like, this was a trend among the suicidal. A pretty dark one that many historians have overlooked. Kathy scoured through archival criminal testimony and found more than 300 cases in Europe in the late 17th and 18th centuries. She says suicide was worse than murder. But isn't murder also a sin? I mean, how can murderers avoid eternal damnation? It makes sense if you believe in salvation in Christianity, which says that as long as sinners repent their sins before they are executed, it's a get-out-of-hell-free card. Kathy says executions, which were typically a public beheading, were like an express elevator to heaven. Something happened to criminals um, in preparing them for death that turned them from a malefactor into a penitent poor sinner where they were absolutely cleansed of sin. And so what they would do is they would take the Eucharist, they would have confession, they would have absolution, they would have incredibly intensive uh, spiritual counseling in the three days before their death, and then they go to their execution in a kind of virtuoso performance together in cooperation with the clergymen who are accompanying them, 
and they give this virtuoso performance of willing death. But Agnes could have killed anyone in order to be executed. Why a child? It sounds particularly gruesome. Yes, and it turns out that the perpetrators of suicide by proxy intentionally chose children as their victims. The, committing the worst crime, which is what child murder kind of is, uh, makes it is also part of the logic of this crime, because you are the deepest, most abject sinner, and then you are cleansed. So it's the the contrast from the most profound sin to being completely cleansed uh, that is performed in this type of crime. Also, the thinking back then was that children are young and innocent and would easily attain salvation. In the minds of those committing these crimes, they were saving these children. And that's why Agnes said the child she killed was a sweet angel before God. Right. And another gruesome fact is the way most of these children died. Their throats were slit. Yeah, it's incredibly violent. We don't have to go into detail. Kathy's research found some cases where blunt axes were used to cut the victim's throat. Amy, stop. <laughs> well, that was the case with Agnes. Why does it seem like most of the children were killed by having their throats slit? Well, Kathy says it's because these suicidal child killers conceive of the murder as a ritual sacrifice. When my perpetrators of suicide by proxy slay a young child in this ritual manner, always involving the slitting of the throat, like Abraham almost did to Isaac, right? And like lambs are sacrificed in that way, always that's how you do it. You cut the throat, that's how it's done. <laughs> so uh, it makes sense. It's aesthetically appealing to them. She says there's a stomach-turning sentimentality in this culture at that time to the slaying and suffering of an innocent and a fascination with child sacrifice. And this is something that goes back to the medieval period with the uh, blood libel, the, the myth of Jewish ritual murder, and it continues during uh, the witch hunt when one of the main crimes that witches were accused of doing was the cannibalizing of young children and infants at the witches' Sabbaths. Whoa, okay, I just have to clearly say here that these ideas are myths. I mean, Jewish people do not ritually murder Christian children and drink their blood, nor do witches eat children. The point is, this line of thinking permeates the culture at this particular period of time. So what ends up happening with these people who commit suicide by proxy? Most are publicly beheaded. So they get their wish. I imagine beheadings were common back then. Public executions were a big deal, a 1700s equivalent of a rock concert. Kathy gave me an example of what they looked like in Hamburg, Germany at the time. Oh, wait, I don't want to hear this. No, Kath, just picture this scene. There were thousands, even tens of thousands of people in attendance. And the streets were full, and the execution procession passes through the city streets and then passes out of the city gate out into the field beyond the city walls where the, the tools of capital punishment are set up. And dare I ask, what were the tools of capital punishment? Was this like a medieval torture chamber? Actually, people were far more violent about death in the 1700s than in medieval times. In Hamburg, beheadings took place on a permanent stone structure, like a monument. It was called a raven stone. They would 
cast your body in a shallow grave at the foot of the Ravenstone if they bury you at all, or worse, they would behead you and then they would kind of weave your body into a big wagon wheel. And so you're literally kind of, your mangled body is woven into this wagon wheel, which is put on a very tall post and then displayed to the elements indefinitely over many years. So it's called a ravenstone because the birds come and pick at the bodies that are there on display. And that's the reason why. Thanks for the visual. <laughs> How does Kathy know all this detail of Hamburg in the 1700s? Extensive archival research. She also found little pamphlets, which were apparently like souvenirs for spectators at executions. These were illustrations of the crime that had been committed. Kathy tells me that during this time, overwhelmingly more women than men were suicidal child killers. Why is that? It's complicated. First, it's the beginning of morals policing. Fornication, if you're unwed, is a crime. So even women who are victims of rape or incest were subject to non-capital criminal punishment. Unwed mothers begin committing neonaticide to try to hide their crime, so they get executed. And then, and then we can add on regular infanticide cases because as bastardy becomes more stigmatized and as actually it becomes more difficult to get married because of economic barriers, more and more women die on the scaffold for infanticide. And then there's more. And then let's throw in witchcraft. Witchcraft! Ah, this is a Halloween episode. Kathy says it wasn't too much earlier in history that women were executed for being witches. Some witch executions were still happening. And what do witches do, Kat? They eat children, just like the witch in Hansel and Gretel. So they're child killers too. Witches also have sex with Satan. They are lustful beasts. <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, people back then really had a high opinion of women, so it would seem. It gets worse. As all of these executions of women are happening, and seemingly it's all their fault too, it's in their nature, then guess what happens next? I don't know if I want to know. I mean, what could possibly be worse? The more women who witness other women executed for killing children, the more they themselves want to kill children and be executed for it. It encourages suicidal child killings. And so as more and more women die on the scaffold and women in the audience see them die, they internalize this discourse and they think of themselves as capable of this crime. But then they can find release from this dilemma because on the one hand, there's the discourse of how diabolically dominated they are. But on the other hand, they just go through this ritual and then they're completely cleansed and pure and they can go straight to heaven and they can also escape some of the unbearable circumstances of their lives. By the late 18th century, Hamburg, Germany has acquired what Kathy calls a sad notoriety for child murders far beyond its borders, with about 82 suicidal child murders in the late 1600s and early 1700s. Think about Hamburg. Uh, Hamburg at various points was about the size of Davis. And now imagine if in the city of Davis, every year or every other year, you had some ritual child murder. 
And in some years in the city of Davis, you would to have two or three in a year. Based on these case studies, it's pretty widespread. Wow, and I thought Omberg was just famous for inventing hamburgers. <laughs> okay, Amy, so how did these suicidal child murders come to an end? Well, different cities tried different things. Some decided to make executions worse for these women. They legislate in various forms in other ways, saying, if you do this, we're going to do extra bad executions. Like, we're going to cut off your hand before we behead you. Or we're going to tear your flesh with red-hot tongs before we behead you. But all of this doesn't work, because these people don't care. They just want to be destroyed. And if there's a little bit more destruction, that does not deter them. Oh my god, why don't they just put an end to executions for this crime? Kathy argues that governments were bound by divine law. If you murder someone, you commit sin, and you must die for it. Blood for blood. In Hamburg, they very much believe that you should punish sinners in the presence of all, so that others would be afraid. So they just kept executing women. Yeah, but Kathy says a couple of things begin to happen by the late 1700s. First, more men begin committing suicide by proxy and are beheaded. Well, this just keeps getting better. But governments also begin to redefine unwed mothers who commit neonaticide. They go from being killers to suffering from mental illness. As young women see fewer young women dying on the Ravenstone, the desire for themselves to die this death diminishes. Also, there is a change in the discourse about the nature of women. And this part, Kat, you're gonna love. By the time we get to the 1770s, women are weak. They're not particularly rational. They're kind of dumb. Can they really be held accountable? Ugh, this whole thing is just extremely disturbing to me. Courts also ended the participation of clergy at the Ravenstone and the religious taboo against direct suicide diminishes. So what happened to Agnes Schicken, the suicidal child killer we talked about in the beginning of this episode? Well, she was not beheaded, which was unusual. She was found to be afflicted with melancholy in the highest degree and was sentenced to flogging inside prison. Oh, good. A much better way to treat the mentally ill. You know, Kat, there are modern day lessons I think we can learn from these suicide by proxies. Oh gosh, like what? Well, let's explore this fascination with child murder that they had back then. That still lingers in certain parts of society today. What are you talking about? These QAnon conspiracy theorists seem to be obsessed with it. They believe a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles are trying to control our politics and media, and they allege obviously falsely, that in addition to molesting children, members of this elite group, which are mainly Democrats, kill and eat their victims to extract a life-extending chemical called adrenochrome. Sound familiar? <laughs> Whoa. So just like the anti-Semitic fantasy of blood libel. And the children eating witches. Now that is truly spooky. Happy Halloween. <laughs> you can find more episodes of Unfold on our website at ucdavis.edu slash unfold. I'm Amy Quinton. And I'm Kat Curlin. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 
Unfold is a production of UC Davis. It's produced by Cody Drabble. Original music for Unfold comes from Damian Verrett and Curtis Jerome Haynes. If you like this podcast, check out UC Davis's other podcast, The Backdrop. It's a monthly interview program featuring conversations with UC Davis scholars and researchers working in the social sciences, humanities, arts, and culture. Hosted by public radio veteran Soterius Johnson, the conversations feature new work and expertise on a trending topic in the news. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.